0: Doing our study about the deity of Christ, and we have this week and next to wrap up. So we have we have turned around the the final corner and we are sprinting toward the finish line. We're not going to get there yet. So come back next week. Um, But to start, let me let me invite you to go with me on a tour in the marketplace of ideas. Um, You know, there are a lot of people that are selling their wares in in the marketplace of ideas, and in one cool little kiosk, a little stand, uh, we see a very attractive gentleman. Uh, he's an American scholar. His name is is Bart Ehrman, um, and he has a great Christianesque religious stand that he's selling. And, and this he's he's a he's a good speaker. He is actually a distinguished professor of religious studies at University of, of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. He's written several books, a couple bestsellers. Um, he well he was an evangelical Christian. Now he's an agnostic. Uh, but who, you know, it's, it's, it's okay. He's still talking. He's an expert on early Christianity. So anything you want to know about how Christianity really started, he, will, he, he can come to lectures. You can come listen to him. You can go online. You can see all his YouTube videos. Uh, one, of, one of his books is called How Jesus Became God, subtitled The Exaltation of a Jewish Preacher from Galilee. So this book tells about, in early Christianity, how Jesus... This rabbi, Jewish rabbi, actually became God. And so in an interview on a show called Fresh Air on NPR, which we all know is the model source of spirituality and and truth, right? Okay, good. Um, He shares some of these following comments. And I just picked a couple. It's actually a really neat, the transcript's online, you can read it. Um, What he says is this. This is Bart Ehrman. Well, what I argue in the book is that during his lifetime, Jesus himself didn't call himself God. And didn't consider himself God and that none of his disciples had any inkling at all that he was God apparently he didn't read his Bible or something Uh, in referencing the statements that Jesus actually made when he claimed to be God this is what he said in the book of John Um, it's simply the view that the gospel of John is providing providing a theological understanding of Jesus that it that is not what was historically accurate so what he says, and he goes on to explain this, is that in Matthew, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we don't see these statements of Jesus saying, I am, and referring to himself as God, so he says. John just wants to, it's a theological understanding of who Jesus is, but that's not really historically accurate. So we can just discount that. And about Talking about the Messiahship, he said this, the Messiah was not supposed to be God. The Messiah was a human being who would be the future king, and that's probably what Jesus taught his disciples that he was. This guy's an expert. You've got to believe him, right? And in terms of Jesus' origin, after talking about all the mythological ways that a God-type person could be a human person at the same time, there's three different ways. And this is what he says. The earliest Christians maintain that Jesus was a human being who was made God or a God, a divine being. Later, they ended up saying that Jesus was born to the union of God and a mortal uh, because the Holy Spirit became upon Mary, and that's how she was and that's how she conceived Jesus. So Jesus literally had God as his Father. And then later, Christians started to say that, well, in fact, Jesus was a divine being who temporarily became a human being. So these three ways of understanding divine humans in the ancient world, are picked up by Christians who develop their Christologies accordingly. So basically, they're saying Jesus is like a Hercules um, and other Greek mythological beings. And you wouldn't be surprised that some of his other bestseller books are called Misquoting Jesus and Jesus uh, Interrupted. But this is what's out there. And this is what people are listening to and believing and buying his books and going to his seminars, and if you're blessed to have him as your religious studies professor in the University of North Carolina on Chapel Hill, this is what's out there. And this this is just a sampling of what some people are believing about the deity of Jesus Christ. And I, I love his first phrase, well, I argue in this book that during his lifetime, Jesus didn't call himself God and didn't consider himself God, and that none of his disciples had any inkling at all that he was God. Well, too bad he's not here today, because tonight we're going to talk about how some of the apostles, his disciples, affirmed that Jesus is God. So we'll talk about some of the apostolic affirmations of the deity of Christ. And we're going to look at five different individuals. We'll look at Thomas, what he said. We know what he said, but we're going to review it. We'll look at what Paul said about Jesus as God. We'll look at what the author of Hebrews says, And then we'll look at Peter and John. Uh, It's not an extensive list, but it gives us a good idea of what his disciples and what the apostles, one, believed about Jesus, and then second, what they taught about Jesus as God. So open with me, if you will, to John chapter 20. Let's look at what Thomas, one of his apostles, one of his disciples said about Jesus as God. John chapter 20, starting in verse 26 We'll start in verse 25. Um, and we'll start in verse 24. We'll keep on going back. But Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. Remember, Jesus had died and he was resurrected and he appeared to 10 of the 11 apostles at the time, disciples. But Thomas wasn't there. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he had said to them, unless I see his hands in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here with your hand and put it in my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. And this is what Thomas said about Jesus. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my, my. my God. My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. So Thomas's confessions is probably one of the greatest confessions Rivaled only by Peter's confession in Matthew chapter twenty, I'm, I'm sorry, sixteen, um, that Jesus is in fact God. And when he said, "My Lord and my God," did Jesus rebuke him and say, "No, no, 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 Peter, uh, Thomas, you have that all wrong"? No, he didn't. He he accepted that and he he affirmed his belief, even though he had a seat to believe. And then he, yes, said, there are those who will come who will not have the opportunity to see what you see, and yet they will believe as well. Believe what? That Jesus was crucified? No, believe that Jesus is God. So Thomas is the first one to believe that Jesus, not to believe. Um, the first one tonight that we're going to talk about that affirm that Jesus is God. And it's fitting that right after that, John, in, in verses 30 and 31, Goes, to, goes on to tell us what the purpose of writing his gospel was. So keep on reading. It says Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, these what? These signs, these acts of Christ, these words, these have been written so that. So that what? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So Thomas teaches us right off the bat that Jesus' resurrection is proof of his claims that he is in fact God. He saw that. And yes, we like to we like to pick on Thomas for being a doubting Thomas. um, But he saw and he believed. So many people today. Doubt, And even when God clearly shows them his word and what he has revealed about himself, they still don't believe. But Thomas did. And he confessed, my Lord, my God. Let's go on to Paul. The Apostle Paul, turn with me in to Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, the first several verses... I'm sorry. Romans chapter nine. We're going to read verse five. I don't know what I said before, so forgive me. Erase that. <coughs> Romans, Romans chapter nine. We're going to read verse five here in a second. Uh, in Romans nine one, and so a couple of verses earlier, Paul is in Romans nine through eleven. Paul sort of takes a a parenthesis in his in his teaching that. He taught about justification by faith and, and how we are all sinners and we are justified by the, by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. He talked about um, the blessing of the Holy Spirit up to chapter 8. And then chapter 12 and on, he's going to talk about Christian life. Since we, since we have the mercies of God, since we, ha- since we were depraved in our sin, but yet Christ died for us and was raised from the dead, and since we have been saved and we have the Holy Spirit, how should we live? That's Romans 12 through the end of the, cha- end of the book. But in Romans 9 through 11, Paul sort of takes a parenthesis and talks about, well, wait a second, where does Israel fit in here? And he talks a lot about God's plan for Israel and God's sovereignty and predestination over Israel and over the the Jews and the Gentiles and all that fits together. So as he starts this little parenthesis of about three chapters, Paul starts to say how blessed Israel is. Uh, Paul's saying, man, we're talking about about grace that is given to us, and yes, I'm we're talking. I'm talking mainly to to Gentiles, but man, Israel has been so blessed by God. And he says, like for example, verse. Let me just read verse one. He says, "I am telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Why? For for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ." For the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are the Israelites, and listen what he says, to whom belong uh, the the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and all the promises. He says Israel has been so blessed by God. They have all the revelation of who God is, his person, his law, his will, the promises, the covenants. The patriarchs, verse 5, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God-blessed forever. Amen. He says the crowning glory of the blessings of Israel is the person of Jesus Christ. Out of all the blessings they've had, and they have so many, the greatest blessing that Israel has is that through Israel, the Messiah came. And look how he, and look how he describes who Christ is. It says, from whom is the Christ according to the flesh? It means he was born in what nationality? As, as of what, as of what nationality? A? A Jew, an Israelite. His parent, his, Mary was an Israelite, so he was born. You got Okay, good job. Just making sure. There was silence. I heard crickets out in the corner of the, <laughs> That's what the according, according to the flesh means. But then he describes Jesus, who is overall what? God blessed Now he's not saying that God has blessed him, not blessed by God. In, in almost every other doxology or, or, or benediction, the blessed comes before God, blessed by God. But here Paul purposely puts the blessed after God in his, in his Greek uh, syntax, saying that he is God who is blessed forever. And Paul saying, what, this is why my heart hurts for my brethren, for, for, for my brothers, my Israelite brothers, is because they have all these blessings and the crowning glory of that blessing is the person of Jesus Christ who is God in human flesh. And they rejected him. They rejected him. But Paul's emphasis for our study tonight is that Jesus Christ is God blessed who is over all. Let's go to Philippians because Paul's not done. And I'm not going to talk all about what Paul has talked about Jesus as God. But let's give you a little little smithering here and there. Philippians chapter 2. A couple of verses that we should know pretty well, Philippians two verses five and six, says this: Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And of course, the passage goes. The passage goes on. Uh, But let's look at these two verses for a second and see what Paul is telling us about the deity of Christ, about who Christ is. He says, Christ existed in the form of God. That means before, during, and after his incarnation, Jesus always is God. In in that phrase, he, he existed, in Greek it's a present active participle, and it means the continuous of a previous state or existence. And the, the emphasis is on the essence of a person's nature, which is, which is unchangeable. It's immutable. It's inalienable. It does not change. He, he has existed. He didn't come into existence. The Greek word means he has always. Exi- it's the continuance of an existence. The continuance of a previous state. It's uh, saying that Jesus has always existed, and then in the form of God. And the word form here. Uh, in Greek is the word morphe, and, and this word refers to the outward manifestation of an inward or in, in, yeah, inner reality. I can almost say that in English. Um, and we say, okay, so what? Well, there's another Greek word that is sometimes used and translates as form, and that word is schema. Now, the difference between the two is this, and this is what I think is really neat. Scheme, so, so morphe is an outward expression of an inner reality. The schema is an outward form that changes from time to time or from circumstance to circumstance. Um, and for example, a good way of looking at that is uh, the, the essential morphe of a human person is our humanity. We are humans. That does not change. That's, that's our form. That's who we are. But our schema will change from time to time because you have a baby and a toddler and a small child. you got a teenager, a young adult, senior citizen. They're, they're always, their morphe is always humanity, but their schema changes as life chapters come and go. But here, Paul uses the word form for morphe, the unchanging outward expression of what is an inner reality. It says that Jesus has always been, in his essence, in his nature, God. God. That did not change when he came in his incarnation. It did not start there. It did not end there. It wasn't a parenthesis. He was always God. He existed continually in his essence, in his being as God. And then it keeps on, it goes on to say, and he did not, Christ did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. When Jesus became a man, he did not forfeit or diminish any of his deity. He did not become less God or an opaque God or a dimmer God when he was born of the Virgin Mary. And when it says he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, you know, Jesus, unlike what Bart uh, Ehrman says, he never denied or minimized his deity while he was on earth. And we have spent several weeks talking about some of his actual his actions and his affirmations that he said that he claimed equality with God. He claimed he was God. We saw that. We have seen that. But he never used his deity as a way to gain personal advantage in life. He had every right to be honored and respected as God because he is. But, and that's what, that's what Paul is telling us in Ephesians 2 in, in that whole paragraph. That even though he is God, he has always existed in the essence, in the form of God. He did not consider that equality with God as something that he had to hold on to to, to, to earn his right to say, you will obey me because I am God. But no, he humbled himself. He suffered our death even though he's God. And he did that because that's the only way we could come to God. It reminds me of 2 Corinthians 8, 9, that says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. That's the God we serve. That's who Christ is. The only one who had any rights to anything in life. He gave up those rights. He did not claim them in order for us to be rich in faith. That's why he became poor. Did not diminish this deity one iota. But it proved what kind of God our Lord Jesus Christ is. Paul continues. Book of Colossians, chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verses, where do we go? Um, Verses 9 and 10. Colossians 2, verses 9 and 10 says this. For in him, the last last word of verse 8 is Christ, and that's what the in him is referring to. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. So this is what Paul is telling us here in Colossians. Uh, So in in the first couple of chapters of the book of Colossians, you can tell that the church in in Colossae had begun to um, accept or tolerate some false philosophical ideas about life. So he is, he is challenging them. Um, for example, in my chapter titles are not inspired by God. Um, but in chapter 2, above my chapter 2, it, the title that this translation put in here says, Not Philosophy, But Christ. And I think it's actually a pretty good title for that chapter. He's telling them, no, do, you do not have to buy into these uh, Judaizers' philosophies of, oh, yes, Christ is good, but you still need to do this, this, and this. No, 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 no. Colossians, please, please, no, listen to me. And so Paul is trying to, to counterattack the, the, the erroneous philosophies of the culture with the truth of the gospel and the truth of who Jesus Christ is. And here in, in chapter 2, verse 9, he says that in Christ, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Now, why would Paul say that? I think there's a couple reasons. Uh, one reason is because of the belief or the idea system called um, emanationism. That's a fun word emanationism. It comes from the word um, the Latin word emanari which means to pour forth or to send out from um, and, and the idea is this. The idea is that all things are derived from a first reality or a, a perfect God and they're derived by, from a first reality by steps of degradation to lesser degrees uh, and basically what it's saying is this, is that you have, you have if you don't want to believe in God, just call a first reality. That's, a, that's your cheap way out. Well, you, you have God, but down here on earth we see how corrupt things are. And there's no way a perfect God or this first reality could create something so debased. So what God did, according to He, from him emanated a lesser being. So it was a little, was a little less pure, less divine. Um, and then that being created another one. And from that one, another one emanated, was poured forth, came out, and so forth, until we got down to Jesus Christ. And so he's a, a lesser form of some being, I guess, um, but not completely God. I mean, he's, he's sort of up there. He's, like on, he's a couple rungs up on the ladder, but he, he emanated from God. And Paul's saying, no, in Christ, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Jesus is always and fully God. He did not come from God as an emanated source that is less divine and less pure and less holy. No, He is God in human form. The and the word deity talks about the divine nature. That's the emphasis of the word deity, and it's saying that that. The divine nature, that God did not cast a divine light over the person of Jesus Christ and make him divine for a short while and then bring it. No, he's saying God, Jesus is fully and forever God. He, and then in, in verse 10, it says that because of that, he rules over all rule and authority. All the angelic realm is under Christ because he is not, A lesser being. Um, It it is. It is so incredible how some, most, uh, false religions that, at least, accept the existence of Jesus Christ, um, make him some lesser being. Uh, I I won't go into that. We might get a sneak peek of that next week, Uh, but. There's another philosophical idea that Paul is, is combating that we see in both Scripture and in uh, extra-biblical literature around this time, and that's the idea of philosophical dualism. I don't want to throw in big terms, but this is what it means. Philosophical dualism means that spiritual realm, spirit, is good. Material, bad. So we have spiritual is good and material is bad. So if, if material, the material thing, which is our bodies, it's the earth we live in, um, but if the spirit is good, and actually, actually one of the things that Paul was trying to, to combat here, I'm not going to get, I, I can get really distracted really easily, we're not going to do that tonight, uh, one of the things that Paul is saying is that according to philosophical dualism, they, it is unthinkable that a perfect spirit God could create this world that is corrupt, it's, it's, it's impossible, and yet Paul is telling them no, 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 no. Jesus, in, in Jesus Christ, the fullness of who God is permanently dwells in, in human form. Do you know that when we get to heaven and we see Jesus face to face, he is still Jesus the man and Jesus God. He is, he is the eternal God-man. The The God who took on flesh in Bethlehem continues to be the God-man. He does not give up flesh when he died on the cross and was resurrected. Why do you think he ascended into heaven? Jesus is the eternal God-man. And that's why in in Revelation, when John sees Christ coming back again in Revelation 19, it is the God-man, it is the King of kings and Lord of lords, He is not just some spiritual being. He is the eternal God-man. Let's see what else Paul has to say. Let's turn to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 2. Titus 2.13. I'll start in verse 11 just for some fun context. Uh, It says, For the grace of God has appeared... What grace is he talking about? What grace of God appeared? Help me out. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Yeah. That is the grace of God. He appeared. So the grace, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and world desire, worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godless, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So here, Paul describes Christ. How? How does he? What's what? The, what is the title that Paul gives to Jesus in Titus two thirteen? He calls him our, great our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, there's one definite article to describe both God and Savior. It's not in our. It's not the glory of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It is our great God and Savior. On on purpose, in Greek, they only put one article, one pronoun, in front of both God and Savior. And it's because it's talking about one singular identity. Christ is God and Savior. And and what's more is that the the verse that follows, the, the pronouns are singular referring to 1. For example it says who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession zealous for good deeds. So Paul once again and in time after time in his epistles Paul is telling us that that Jesus is God our great God and savior Jesus Christ. You know the old testament often refers to God as our great God. Um, You see that over and over again in the Old Testament. But interestingly enough, in the New Testament, when the word great is used to describe part of the Trinity, it is only used for God the Son. In the New Testament, you can't find Great as a title for God the Father. I mean, he still is, don't get me wrong. But in the New Testament, when when somebody says, our great, talking about something, part of the Trinity, it's always God the Son, our great Lord, our great Savior. Here, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And also, the, the New Testament speaks nowhere of the appearing and the coming, second coming of God the Father but only of God the Son. So Paul is clearly speaking to only about God the Son when he calls him our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I'm sorry, Bart Ehrman, but you can't tell me that the, his disciples, the apostles, had no inkling that he was God. No, time and time again in their writings, they show us clearly that he is God. So we talked about Thomas's affirmation of, of Christ's deity. We saw just a little bit about Paul, but let's go to the author of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter one. And we have, we have heard parts of this verse, uh, these two verses, two, verses two and three, already taught before in, in, in some previous weeks, so we're just gonna review that quickly. Um, but the author of Hebrews clearly states that Jesus is God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, it says, In these last days He has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And He, talking about His Son, Jesus Christ, is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power when he had made perfection of his sins of sins not his sins when he had made when he had made perfection of sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high so when it talks about Christ a couple a couple ways the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ is in fact God the first one in verse in verse 2 it says that god appointed Jesus Christ as heir of all things in Psalm, Psalm 2, Psalm two, let me read verses 6 through 9. The psalmist says the same thing. He says, but for, as for me, he's personifying God talking. As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. The author of Hebrews says the same thing, saying that Jesus is the heir of all things. Psalm 89, 27 says, I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, in the Bible, when it talks about firstborn, it's not primarily a chronological term. Um, But rather, in most cases, it has to do with legal rights, especially those rights that have to deal with Uh, with inheritance and authority. And so what it's saying is that God's destined kingdom will in the last days be finally and eternally given over to the Son, given to Jesus Christ. He is the heir of all things. And you know what's so incredible to think? Is that in Romans chapter 8, it says that if we are children of God, We are sons of God. We are also, therefore, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Have you ever stopped to think about that? Because that that blows my mind. If Christ is the the heir of all things, everything will be given over to Christ. And we, as his bride, are co-heirs with Christ. I don't know what that's going to look like. Maybe you do, I don't think so, we haven't been there yet. Uh, but how incredible, what a privilege we have as children. We are co-heirs with Christ. We are rich. Why do we live like we're spiritually poor? Look at our inheritance that is ours. Are we have, have we not read this? Do we not get what is ours, what is, what is to come? What we have in Christ today? We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. How many times I have to ask forgiveness of, of not living in light of what I know of, of who I am in Christ. Sometimes we, even if it's not any outward sin, I think we, we grieve the Holy Spirit by not living up to our identity in Christ. This is our Redeemer, our Savior, is is God, is the heir of all things. God the Father will give all things over to the Son, and yet we know at the end of time the Son is going to turn it around and give it back to the Father. So Hebrews says that he is the heir of all things, and then it keeps on going in verse 2. It says, Through whom also he made the world. So not only is Jesus Christ the heir of all things that shows that he is God because God the Father is giving God the Son everything, but it says that Jesus is the agent through whom God created the world. Uh, Colossians tells us the same thing, that all things were made by him and through him and for him. So when we've been talking the last um, several weeks about Genesis, so back in Genesis chapter 1, for in the beginning God created, well, Colossians and Hebrews help us understand that even though we can't understand exactly how it works, it was Christ. That was Christ creating. That's what Hebrews tells us. And that's, what, that's what Colossians tells us. And you know, apart from his sinless perfection, apart from his absolute righteousness, one of the things that sets Christ apart from us the most is his creatorship. Because only God can create. Only God can create something out of nothing. And here it says that Jesus Christ created. So if nothing else, he, I mean, think about, think about our universe. And I, I will confess, I asked my son to confirm this with me. He's six years old, and yes, he confirmed this. Um, and he, he, he does, he does know this. Those of you who know my son, um, our son, I asked, I asked Matthew, he said, Matthew, how far, is it, far, how far away is the sun from us? 93 million miles. I looked on, oh, you're right, okay. Um, I said, I'm going to ask you, I'm not going to give you the answer until somebody guesses. What is the next closest star? The sun is the closest star, that's what the sun is. But does anybody know what the next closest star to us is? Players. Huh? Players. Is it players? It is not. I heard something over there. Alpha Centauri is a three-star, a triple-star system, and one of those three stars is Proxima Centauri, which is so. Yes, we'll give you, we'll give you full credit for that. That's good. Um, Proxima Centauri. So I asked Matthew. He said Matthew, what is the next closest star? Oh, Proxima Centauri is part of Alpha Centauri. How, how do you know these things? I don't know. Um, he he loves space. He gets it from his mom. He does definitely from his mom, not from his dad. Um, so Al, so Proxima Centauri is the next closest sun star us, so the the Sun is how many million miles away? 93 93 million miles away. Proxima Centauri is 25 trillion miles away. So a little farther than the Sun, a lot farther. So a ray of light, the speed of light, is 186,000 miles per second. All right? So if we could travel at the speed of light, we could get to Mars in 3 minutes and 2 seconds. We could get to Saturn in 1 hour, 20 minutes and 15 seconds. But that's still all inside our solar system. So traveling at the speed of light, we can get to Saturn in an hour, 20 minutes, and 15 seconds. Anyone know how long it would take us to get to Proxima Centauri? My son knew this, by the way. Without I, I, I kid you not. I don't know how or why, but he loves it. He said 4.24 light years. <laughs> yes, you're, you're correct. Uh, so, but that... that it doesn't help me figure this out. Okay, so the, so the fastest, they just built the SLS, the Space Launch System. Remember this, the, the new rocket, that's part of Artemis program in, in NASA? So the, the SLS is the fastest moving rocket right now, and it has a top cruising speed at 24,500 miles an hour. So if we were all to board on to the SLS and travel to Proxima Centauri, that tra- so it's going, we're going at 24,500 miles per hour, you know how long it would take us? 116,500 years. <laughs> Anybody up for the trip? So, I mean, it's, it, it's crazy how vast, so that's our closest star. For example, if you go out into the night sky and see Orion, you guys know how to recognize Orion, see the belt, if you can see the, the brightest star in Orion, it's like a shoulder star, it's called Betelgeuse, not the TV show, it's actually the star's name. Um, they estimate that star is about 450 light years away. Proxima Centauri is 4.24. This is about 450 light years away. So, so, who conceived that? Who thought of that? Who? It could have just been an accident, because it's not. The maker of our solar system, our universe, is Jesus Christ. He made that. He's God. And this is a freebie, but why do you think He made the universe so big? According to scientists, it's unending, which it's not because only God is. But it is unending as far as our human perspective can. We can't find where it ends. It is limitless according to our finite minds. Um, Only one thing is infinite, and that's God. But why do you think, that's sort of a clue, I think, why do you think God made the universe so huge? He wanted to. That's a great answer. He wanted to. God does anything he wants to do. Because he can, because he's bigger. If we can't even begin to fathom how big our universe is, to know that God just went, well, he spoke, he didn't do that. Um, Just spoke it into existence with zero effort. That's how big our God is. He is infinite. He is eternal. And that creator God, affirmed by author of Hebrews and Colossians, is none other than Jesus Christ. His creatorship proves that he is God. Author of Hebrews keeps on going. He says, With, for through whom he made, all, all, he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory. The radiance of his glory. The word radiance means to send forth light. So the author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is the manifestation of God's glory. He's the manifestation of, of who God is. And just as the sun is never without and cannot stop shining its light, So God the Father is never without and never stops shining the glory of Christ. It is one and the same. He is the radiance of the glory of who God is because he is God. And he keeps on going saying that he is the exact representation of his nature. Before that, just because I looked at my notes before I kept on going. Um, And we learned this last week. uh, David Miller was was teaching us that in in the temple in John chapter 8, Jesus stood up and said, I am God the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so Jesus, as the radiance of the glory of God, lights up my life and your life through the gospel, through his word. He allows us to radiate the glory of God with people around us. the question that sometimes we don't like to ask ourselves is how much are we radiating God's glory? If people see us, do they see the glory of God? And I I know no one's one's perfect. Um, I'm not. My wife's in the room. You can ask her. She can tell you all sorts of stories. Um, But how much are we thinking, God, I don't know what kind of opportunities you're going to give me today. I don't know who I'm going to come across, but God, will you glorify yourself in me today? Will you let me be some kind of light? And I know I'm going to mess it up somehow. I seem to always do that. Um, But would would you work through me today? Would you allow me to be a blessing to somebody else? Let my words edify today. I don't like it, but let me not focus on my rights, on what I deserve and how I deserve to be treated, but let me through the light of Christ that illuminates my life, radiate your glory. So Jesus is the radiance of his glory. He is the exact representation of his nature. And that word exact, that phrase exact representation, it means the impression made by a cast or a die. Or we have kids at our house, Play-Doh. When my kids play with little Play-Doh, they have those little stamps. And so you stamp it on the Play-Doh and you lift up the stamp. Oh, look, it's exactly the same. That's, what, that's the idea that this, that this term is going for, is that Jesus is, the, is the, the personal and eternal imprint of God in time and space. The only way... There, there's a verse in, in, in Luke. Am I there yet? No, i am coming to that later. Never mind, I'll get to that, that in a second. I'm jumping ahead. There's so many good verses in the Bible. Uh, even in Colossians 1.15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God. He's the, the icon. The very first lesson Pastor Russell taught us about Christ as the icon, um, the exact reproduction, the precise copy with no error. And when we say that Christ is the icon, the exact image, the, re- the reproduction of who God is, it's saying that how many people have seen God? Nobody. But when we see Christ in Scripture, we are seeing God. He is, he is the exact Reproduction in, in time and space of the nature of God, the character of God, who God is, because he is God. In Hebrews, it also finishes by saying that he upholds all things by the word of his power. Everything in the universe right now is sustained by Jesus Christ. Nothing happens by accident. Things did not come into being by accident in the beginning. Things will not happen by accident in the end. And things are not happening by accident today. Jesus Christ sustains everything. He sustains things from the farthest star away. From Betelgeuse is not the farthest star. But he sustains things from Betelgeuse down to our salvation. Every single aspect of life is sustained by Jesus Christ. He upholds all things with the power of his word, with his word of power. Let's jump a couple verses ahead. One more thing from Hebrews and then we'll keep on going. We have two more to get to. We'll get there, don't worry. <clears throat> Hebrews 1.8. So at the end of, of, of verse three and going into verse four, the author of Hebrews starts to, to contrast Jesus with angels. He's saying Jesus is far superior than angels. And actually, the whole book of Hebrews talks about how Christ is superior. Um, but here, chapter 1, he talks about how Christ is superior than angels. And in verse 8, he continues that, that comparison and contrast but, by saying, but of the Son, he says, so who's the, let me, let me read the verse first, and then I'll ask you the question. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. So at the beginning of verse eight, he says, but of the son, he says, or mind the he says is in italics, which means it is is not in there in in the original, but it is in verse seven. And of the angels, he says, but when he talks about he says, who's saying? God, God is saying this. So listen to what God, the father says about God, the son. So God, the father tells God, the son, your throne. What does he call him? Oh, God is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. So, we've already seen in weeks past how Jesus clearly claimed equality with God. We spent several weeks looking at at his affirmations of that and the gospel's affirmations of that. But here we have what could be possibly one of the most powerful, irrefutable proofs of the deity of Christ from God the Father himself. God the Father is telling God the Son, you are God forever. He's saying your throne is an eternal throne. So Christ is an eternal king with an eternal throne, with an eternal scepter of righteousness. And all of that is declared by God the Father. So you're telling me that Scripture doesn't say that Christ is... You're not reading the same Bible I am. I'm sorry, Bart Ehrman. Really quick parentheses, I like parentheses. Bart claims that he was an evangelical Christian. What he teaches and speaks today proves that he never knew Christ. He, he had a great religious facade. He, he learned the lingo the lingo, and was, was able to present himself very well when we are in religious circles. He was never a true believer. That was free. Uh, let's go to first, uh, second Peter. Peter also um, was able to witness the works of Christ and hear his teaching and it, it is his great confession in Matthew 16 that we learn, that we remember so well. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the living God. In 2 Peter 1, verse 1, as Peter is beginning this letter, Listen to how he, how he starts. He says this Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, how did we receive this faith? By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, what Peter is starting to say, and then he'll go on, is that the reason why we have faith in our saved is because Christ's righteousness has been imputed upon us, saying that on the cross, Christ took on our sins, our sin debt, our wrath that we deserved. He bore that on his, on his cross. That's why Isaiah 53 verse 10 says that it pleased God to crush his son. He poured out his wrath on God the Son on the cross because that was our sin he was paying for. And Christ took on our sin And God treated him as though he were sin. So that Christ's righteousness, when an individual repents of his sin and believes in Jesus Christ, is imputed to him. It is counted to him, and God treats him or her as though he were righteous, just as Christ was. So Peter is saying that the reason why we have a saving faith, the reason why we have a hope, is because of the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now it's interesting, In Scripture, although, yes, God is righteousness, it never talks about the righteousness of God the Father being imputed on the the believer, but always of God the Son. So every time we talk about imputed righteousness or righteousness credited by faith to us, it is always the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's what what Peter's saying here. This righteousness is from Christ, who is our Savior and our God. It, It is our God and once again, in, in Greek, there's, there's one definite article before the phrase God and Savior. It is one and the same. Jesus Christ is our God and our Savior. So Peter, once again, in his writing, saying that Jesus Christ is our God. He is our Savior. And then let's look at John. We've already, we've already seen John several times in his, in his uh, narrative of the gospel. But in 1 John chapter 5 as he's finishing his, his little, his short epistle, um, verses 20 and 21. 1 John 5, 20 says, And we know that the Son of God has come. At the beginning of his, his, his short little epistle, in John 1, verse 1, he says that the word of life has come. So he talks about the coming of the word of life uh, of, of God, the, the Son. And then he finishes talking about the certainty that we know that, God, that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Luke, two, Luke 10, chapter, chapter 10, verse 22 says that no one can know who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. So Luke tells us that we cannot know the Father just because we want to know the Father. We can't just say, hey, I, think I, I, I want to know who God is. And I'll, no, the, the only way we can know, the only person who knows the Father is the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Once again, Luke is telling us that the only way you can know the Father is through the Son. son. And then here Jesus says that Jesus has given us understanding that we may know Him. We may know Him who is true. So in Christ we have an intimate understanding and comprehension of who God is. Because when you see Christ, you see God. But not only is it limited to an, to a, to an understanding, because look, at it's, it's also a, a personal union with him because it keeps on going, saying so that we, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true. We are in Christ. Our position before God is in Jesus Christ. That's, that's our identity. That's who we are. We have been, been submerged in him. And then three times in this verse, he used the word true. We know him who is true. We are in him who is true. And I I think the emphasis is that Jesus Christ is the only source of truth in this world that is so blinded by lies and deception. This book, this book. This book, that's right. Because it is the word incarnate and the word written. And then the last time he uses the word true, this is the true God. This is the true God, Jesus Christ, whom, of whom we have knowledge that so we can know him, in whom we find ourselves, we are in him. This is the true God and eternal life. He's saying there is no eternal life outside of Christ. And Christ is God. The deity of Jesus Christ is an essential element of the Christian faith. Anyone who rejects the deity of Christ cannot be saved. They cannot be saved. Because this is who Christ is. To say, as some in the marketplace of ideas, that, he is, that Jesus actually never claimed to be God and it was just a mythological way of starting Christianity in the early days. You, you, can't, you can't have salvation. You can't be saved if you're convinced that Jesus is not God. And there, time doesn't allow us to go through other passages. There's, in, As John continues to, to write in the book of Revelation, he once again talks about Jesus Christ as God. Um, and at the end, in, in Revelation chapter 19, he talks about Jesus as God coming again, once again, to reign. But let me, let me end by, by asking this question. Why? And it's pretty obvious. But why is it important to believe that Jesus is God? Why is it important? It's our salvation. He said he's God, and he's not. It's our salvation. Yeah. Because he said he was God, and if he's not, we're calling him a liar. Or as C.S. Lewis uh, said in Christianity*, he's either a liar, or a lunatic, or Lord because we, there's no salvation. Thomas tells us, he reminds us that the resurrection of Christ proves that he is God incarnate. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the resurrection and the life. And by believing in him, we can have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Paul reiterates that God, that Christ is God, blessed forever, the eternal God man and our great God and Savior. See, if Jesus is not a great God, he cannot be a great savior. You can't have one or the other. He is a great God and Savior. The author of Hebrews encourages us to look at Christ's creatorship and see what a great God he is, to see his eternal throne and the grace that flows out of that throne to all who would repent of their sins and believe in him. He is the light of life. He is the sustainer of all things. Um, Peter reminds us once again and calls us to extol our great God, for the imputed righteousness that was his on the cross that he gave to us upon the moment where we accept him as our Lord and Savior. And John, once again, directs our attention to Jesus Christ, the true God, and eternal life. We have such a privilege if we know Christ is our personal Lord and Savior. And as As John finished his epistle talking about Jesus is the truth, um, in in the Legacy Bible Study, we're going through a book called The The Truth War. Um, And the question is posed, can truth survive in a postmodern society where we live today? And the answer is a resounding yes. Because it's not our truth. It is the truth. And we... We know Him who is true. We are in Him who is true. This is the true God, in eternal life. So, my brother and sister, you have the truth. I have the truth because we know that Jesus is God. What are you doing with the truth? Keep it to yourself. This week, with whom can you share? With whom can you share the truth that you know about Jesus Christ? And how because he is God, he does have the power to forgive sins, to transform lives, to restore marriages. He does that. And the way he does that is through his children. It's through your life and through mine, through your words and mine. So I pray that God would open my eyes to the opportunities he puts in front of me every day. You can you pray for opportunities, that's uh, great, but they're always there, God will give them to you. Pray that you would open your eyes, or that he would open your eyes, and let you know that, hey, this person is, I'm stuck by this person for a couple, half an hour, an hour, hey, maybe there's a reason. Let me start a couple conversation. We have the truth, and the world does not have it. They're searching, they're buying all sorts of deception and lies, but Christ's church, his bride, that's you and me if we know him and love him and he's our Lord and Savior. We have been called to share the truth. And I pray that that we would be able to radiate, obviously in a lesser form, God's glory through our obedience and through our faithful witness of who he is and what he's done for us.